What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of X Knows All. I'm so happy you're here. I hope everyone had a great Christmas, a great Hanukkah, a great holiday, whatever you may celebrate. I hope it was wonderful and that you got to spend it with friends and family. I just got back from a European vacation with my family. I was in Ireland for a week. I was in Dublin for a couple days, then in Kerry, which is the countryside of Ireland, and then back to Dublin. I've been to Dublin so many times, so it's not even like a huge deal for me to go anymore. My sister used to live there. Uh, her husband's Irish, so it was a really, really great, um, great holiday. And, you know, it's the first of 2024, so I figured what better way to kick off an episode of X Knows All than to start with the most perplexing case I think I've ever gone down the rabbit hole for, and that is the case of Maura Murray. I talked about the JonBenet Ramsey case a couple episodes ago, and that case has really sparked my interest in true crime. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to pause this episode and go into the JonBenet Ramsey story. Um, but I think the Maura Murray case is equally as confusing, equally as perplexing as the JonBenet case, if not more, to be honest. Not only does it intrigue me because it's a disappearance case in that Maura's never been found, her body's never been found. It's literally as if she vanished into thin air. But there are so many confusing events that lead up to Maura Murray's disappearance, which has lent itself to a lot of theories as to what exactly happened to her on the night of February 9th, 2004. I wanted to quickly, up top, give credit to where credit is due. There is a woman on Instagram, and her handle is at owlbunting, O-W-L-B-U-N-T-I-N-G. I think she's private, so you do have to request to follow her. But she did an amazing Instagram highlight reel that discusses the entire case from top to bottom. And I use a lot of her resources to write today's episode. So definitely head on over there to Alabunti's Instagram to see some related pictures as, as well. One other source I wanted to disclose at the beginning is there's an Oxygen documentary that you can stream right now on Peacock. It was filmed, I want to say like, six or seven years ago. It's titled The Disappearance of Maura Murray. It's a woman who is uh, an alumni of University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is where Maura Murray attended school. And that's a really good documentary um, and good source of information because the journalist speaks a lot with Maura's family and they've historically been pretty silent about the disappearance of, you know, their sister, their daughter. So I would definitely check out uh, that series as as well. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. And I want to disclose really quickly, this case is very spooky. And if you're easily spooked, I would highly encourage you to maybe just stop listening because it, it seriously, as I was doing research for this episode, I couldn't help but just feel chills down my spine, like the hairs on the back of my neck were, were up. It's just, it's so creepy. And I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it today. And when I did an uh, Instagram poll and I asked my listeners, you know, who's heard of the Maura Murray case? Because I feel like everyone's heard about the JonBenet Ramsey case. Everyone's heard about the Natalie Holloway case, the Madeline McCann case. But I think Maura Murray is one of those where if you're a true crime addict like myself, you'll know the case. But if you're not as familiar with true crime, you won't be familiar. And I would say about 60% of my followers on Instagram did not 
know about the case. They were unfamiliar with it. And the remaining 40% had heard of the case. So I'm, I'm curious kind of what rabbit holes you all go down after listening to this episode. And if you could please shoot me a follow on Instagram at xnosall, I'll put a few corresponding photos and the like uh, that go along with this episode. So let's get into it. Who was Maura Murray? So Maura Murray was a 21-year-old student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And she is the the poster child of what is depicted to be a perfect life, or so it seems, right? She was this glimmering light. She's this woman that seemingly had it all. She was a star athlete uh, from when she was a very young child. And when she entered high school, she ran cross country and track. She made the varsity team when she was just a freshman. She was a straight A student. All of her teachers loved her and she came from a seemingly loving family and she had a huge family, her mom, her dad, and two brothers and two other sisters. So five children in their family. So on uh, February 9th, February 9th, 2004 at 7.25 p.m. on a very cold, very snowy, very icy day in Haverhill, North Hampshire, Mora had lost control of her 1996 Saturn and she spun off the road and into the snow. And just 21 minutes later, she vanished out of thin air. So where Mora had spun out of control was in fact a super remote area in the mountains. However, there were a few neighboring houses in and around where Mora had her car crash. So when the neighbors heard a huge thud outside, one of the neighbors looked out their window and they saw Mora's black Saturn crash on the side of the road. So one of the neighbors reported the accident by calling 911 with her landline. And it's really important to note that while cellular devices were a thing back in 2004, obviously not smartphones, they were like the big block Nokia phones. Uh, the area that where Mora had her crash was an area where cell service was non-existent. So the Westmans were another kind of block of neighbors and one of the three witnesses that night that had called police. And one of the members of the Westman family told the 911 dispatcher that she had seen what she thought to be a man smoking a cigarette inside the car. One thing about eyewitness testimony that you may not know is that it's actually quite reliable. So there was a case in 1984, there was a man named Kirk Bloodsworth, and he was convicted of the rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl and was sentenced to the gas chamber. And the outcome of the trial had rested largely on the testimony of five eyewitnesses. And unfortunately, after Kirk Bloodsworth served nine years in prison, the DNA testing proved him to be innocent. And surveys have shown that most jurors place heavy weight on, heavy weight on eyewitness testimony when deciding whether or not a suspect is guilty or not guilty. Although eyewitness reports are sometimes accurate, jurors should not accept them uncritically because of the many factors that can bias many eyewitness testimonies. So for example, jurors tend to give more weight to the testimony of eyewitnesses who report that they were very sure about the identifications, even though the majority of studies indicate that highly confident eyewitnesses are generally only slightly more accurate, and sometimes no more so than those who are less confident in their testimony. There's a lot of uncritical acceptance of eyewitness accounts, which may stem from a popular mis misconception of how the brain and the memory works in your brain. So many people believe that human memory works similar to like a video recorder and that the mind will record events and then on cue, it'll play back an exact replica of those events played on that so-called video recorder. However, psychologists have found that memories are reconstructed rather than played back each time we recall them. The act of remembering 
uh, says Elizabeth F. Luft Loftus of UCI Irvine. It says it's more akin to puzzling pieces together than retrieving an actual video recording, which can often lead to false memories. So I think while one of the Westmans stated in the 911 call that they saw a man smoking a cigarette, it's very hard considering how late it was, how dark it was in the dead of winter at half past 7 p.m. to see whether or not the person or individual in the vehicle was in fact a man or a woman. So minutes after the Westman neighbor had made the call to 911, there was a neighbor whose name is Butch Atwood. He is the last person to see Maura alive, and he was actually driving home from work. His occupation uh, was a school bus driver, and he had come across the car wreck. So he had pulled over, and he had asked Maura, hey, do you need any help? And she said that she was shaken up, but not to worry because she had already called AAA. And Butch Atwood at the time knew this was a lie because cell phone service is unavailable in those areas of Haverhill, New Hampshire. And interestingly enough, when the investigative journalist on that Oxygen documentary redid the entire route that Mara would have taken ahead of her crash, cell phone service still doesn't, it's still not operable in those areas. So definitely her cell phone would not have been working at that time. So Butch knew she was lying, right? And he was like, okay, this girl's full of shit. But he went up the street and inside his home, and he also called 911 on top of the Westman family who had just also called 911. And Butch said that, you know, he kept his eye on the car before the police came. And at some point, I think it's really important to know that at one point, there were three pairs of eyes on Mora after the crash. There was Butch Atwood's, uh, the, mess, the, the Westman's, and then one other... Um, neighboring family and by the time the responding officers arrived at the scene of the accident the car was empty and it had been locked and the woman had seemingly vanished she was not found inside the car or around the area where the car crash had occurred and it's really important to note that based on the timestamps of when the neighbors had called 911 as well as when bush actually interacted with mora face to face there had to have been a very tiny, tiny window of time at which she could have vanished. And based on this oxygen documentary, they assumed that this time frame was likely around seven minutes based on the calls that were made. You know, they assumed that there was a seven minute window of time when all three people were not watching Mara's car and she either, one, left her car willingly, two, was abducted by a nefarious captor, a serial killer, or three, perhaps someone was traveling behind Mora and had picked her up in like a tandem vehicle and she had left on her own volition with someone that she knew and we'll get into all these theories as we continue on in the episode so it's really important to note that it was freezing at this time you know it's February up in the mountains it's snowing you know Mora grew up as a cross-country runner she loved going to the mountains with her family and these mountains held a really special place for her and her father even said in his latest interviews you know it doesn't surprise me that if Mora was, in fact, wanting to get away, you know, just for a couple of days, she would probably go to this area in the mountains because they used to go up and hike, you know, her and her family with their father. It just held a really, really sentimental place in Mora's heart for her. And if she had left the car to avoid police, like let's say, and you'll find out more as I get into the episode, she had a lot of issues with police in the months and days leading up to her disappearance. So if she had, in fact, left... If she had, in fact, left her car to evade police, why would she voluntarily expose herself to the elements, knowing that it would kill her because it was so freezing cold that night? And what's even more confusing is after the car crash, once daylight hit, they search 
in and around the car, you know, miles out to see if they could find her body. You know, perhaps she had just frozen to death or any of her belongings that she had been traveling with that night near the area that her car was found in. But they could not find a single trace of evidence that would point that she ever left that car and was traveling or walking around the area. So this was kind of, this is kind of the high level of what the case is all about. And I'm going to kind of go into who she was and the strange and very confusing events leading up to her disappearance. So who was Maura Murray? As I mentioned before, she was a straight A student. She scored a 1420 on her SATs, which at that time, I think the SATs were based on a 1600 scale. So she, she scored nearly perfectly. She was literally a teacher's pet. In fact, in the documentary I watched, her dad, Fred Murray, showed her report cards on camera. And all the comments from the teachers were saying, pleasure to be around, diligent, hardworking, excels. You know, she was just a perfect, seemingly perfect child. She was very athletic, as I mentioned. She was on the varsity basketball team as a freshman. She was an absolute star, though, when it came to running. She had qualified for the U.S. Nationals as a sophomore in track, and she later attended West Point, where her sister Julie attended college. She was a couple of years ahead of, of Mora. And despite being accepted into Ivy Leagues such as Harvard and Yale, she decided to follow her sister at West Point. And just two years after enrolling at West Point, Mora later withdrew, and she transferred schools to the University of Massachusetts Amherst to pursue a nursing degree. She was dating someone at the time when she left West Point. She had a boyfriend named Bill Roush, uh, who attended West Point as well. And her family describes the two of them as being very, very serious. She was 21 years old. He was, I think, a slightly older than her, but they were, quote, engaged to be engaged. Uh, they were very serious. And after she had transferred from West Point to UMass, they were still long distance. And uh, as I said, she felt more at home with you know, near her family. Once she went to UMass, she was closer proximity to her family because she's originally from the Massachusetts area. So she just felt more seemingly at peace uh, being closer to her family. So what exactly was the issue? What was going on in Moore's life where people think she could have perhaps had incentive to run away from her entire life, never to be seen again? That this was an intentional runaway and an intentional pursuit to just leave everything she knew and loved to start a brand new life what was happening in her life at this time so around the time of her disappearance Mora was struggling heavily with an eating eating disorder you know with eating disorders it's it's very typical the diagnosis is very typical and I'm not going to put a blanket statement but those who have eating disorders often are people who are overachievers who do struggle a lot with perfectionism who do put a lot of pressure on themselves and there's been a lot of conversation about the family dynamics and how Mora grew up and her parents divorced and she lived primarily with her mom but her dad still had a really large influence on her and her father allegedly put a lot of pressure on Mora and her sister Julie who kind of grew up as they were kind of the star children. You know, there were five kids, but it seems as if Maura and Julia were kind of the overachievers, the super smart ones who had a lot to to gain from life. Uh, you know, she was a track star and a student. And before she got into West Point, it seemed as if she was, think big fish, small pond energy, right? Where you're coming from this small town, you excel in every aspect of your life, you're popular, you have friends, you have a great family. And by the time she gets to West Point, everyone's like her. 
everyone was the star of their class. Everyone was nearly valedictorian. Everyone ran, was the star of their track team, right? So I think Maura had a lot of trouble adjusting to college life, knowing that she wasn't the best at everything anymore. And there's an interview with her sister, Julie, where Julie describes West Point as being somewhere where you're just perpetually stressed. She describes it as a place where everyone is a star and anything lower than extraordinary is really just not acceptable. And that's just really hard for a person who already puts a lot of pressure on themselves, who already struggles with perfectionism and really trying to please their father. It seems as if Maura and Julie were almost kind of, I don't want to use the, the term scared, but it seems as if they were doing everything and anything to make sure that they were accepted by their father and they were making their father proud. So three months before Maura's disappearance, Maura had found a receipt in one of the dorm room trash cans with a student's credit card information. So she would later use this credit card to purchase a bunch of food. Specifically, she was purchasing pizza and uh, sub sandwiches from this local restaurant in the area named Pinocchio's in Amherst. And as we know, since she was struggling with an eating disorder, specifically binging and purging, so much of this disease is living in secret. And I'm pretty confident, although it's, you know, we can't prove for certain, she was using the credit card to basically avoid ownership of her disease. And regardless of whether or not her family had access to her finances or to her credit card or to her transactions, I kind of see Mora using someone else's credit card to basically rid herself of taking accountability for her sickness. It's almost as if, you know, when you're going through something and it's really hard sometimes, at least for me to put pen to paper, if I'm like feeling a certain emotion, when I write it down, it almost makes it feel that much more real. I feel like that's what Maura was doing with a credit card that was not hers. She was fraudulently using someone else's credit card to disown her very, her, her sickness. And Throughout the next couple of weeks, she started ordering a bunch of food. At one point, she ordered $79 worth of food from this student's credit card, which, um, you know, again, this makes no sense because she had two jobs. She didn't need the money. Again, I think it's a lack of control over her eating disorder and needing to kind of not, yeah, not take ownership over it. So this came to a head once when the student whose credit card information had been stolen raised the alarm bell and reported the stolen credit card usage to campus police. And what happened was the police did a sting operation, and once the credit card was used, the police followed the pizza delivery guy to Mora's room and identified her as the culprit of using uh, this this credit card fraudulently. Mora was charged and booked. Um, in the police station, there was this very chilling picture of her at the police station where she was being booked, and it just... It's such a far cry from all these other really happy, dimply, smiling pictures of Mora that we were so used to seeing. It's really disturbing to kind of see in her eyes. You can see that she's struggling with something. And, you know, little do we know that that struggle would, would turn out to her vanishing. One other thing I want to point out was the reason that she ended up transferring out of West Point to UMass is actually because she was caught stealing. So her and her friend Megan were at one of the student unions, you know, where you got buy books and textbooks and school supplies. And her friend Megan and her were leaving the, the school union when two military officers basically not tackled, but grabbed Mora and said, you know, show us your bag. We saw you stealing on the cameras. And she had stolen something super, super petty. You know, the friend doesn't even really recall exactly what it is, but she equates the value of what she had stolen to like nail polish and lipstick. And because West Point is a military academy and the honor code is so strict and abided by by the students, Maura would have been expelled 
for this petty theft, but before being expelled, she actually withdrew to then go to UMass. It seems as if she was stealing as a way to to cope or to deal, and it just seems it's her way of acting out in secrecy. And I remember, like, listen, I remember in high school when (laughs) – and I know this was a huge thing for, for kids where I grew up. We would go to the mall and we would steal stupid shit. Like we would go to Wet and like grab earrings. And, you know, the, we're kids, right? Like this isn't necessarily just because you're you're doing petty theft doesn't necessarily make you a bad person or that you're bound to, you know, be in trouble with, with law enforcement. But I think her stealing both at West Point and at UMass – couple with her eating disorder and more events to come it paints a very different picture at the state of her mind at the time of her disappearance one of the most chilling and disturbing pieces of this of this case is just four days before Morris' disappearance she was working one of her two jobs she worked as a checkpoint campus security desk person so you know when you were in the college dorms when you wanted to go inside and access the dorm you someone would have to check you in so she worked as a check-in person And during a break in her shift, Kathleen, who is Maura's older sister, they were very, very close. Maura and Julie were kind of the overachievers, the the white swans of the family. They were just highly excelled, really smart, went to the, got the best education. It seemed as if Kathleen was the older black sheep of the family. So at this time, when Maura had a break in her shift, she had gotten off the phone with Kathleen, her older sister, and in the Oxygen documentary that's now streaming on Peacock, Kathleen describes that she had called Maura to basically tell her, hey, you know, knowing that Kathleen had been having a lot of struggles with alcohol, she had been in and out of rehab. And I guess Kathleen and her husband had gotten into a huge fight after Kathleen's husband picked Kathleen up from rehab and then they had stopped at a liquor store on their way home and it was presumed based on this phone call that Kathleen relapsed and Maura was obviously very very distressed after this phone call and she was so distressed in fact that she started to have like a huge panic and it seemed I didn't hear the words hyperventilating or panic attack but it seems like she was in such a distress through crying and so inconsolable that her supervisor at the campus check-in security job didn't feel comfortable allowing Mora to walk back to her dorm room by herself. So the supervisor, her boss, ended up walking Mora back to her dorm room at around 1 a.m. And Mora couldn't really say much. She was so choked up. She couldn't really speak. But all she kept crying out to the supervisor was, my sister, my sister. And again, showing the state of her mind in the days preceding her disappearance. Something else that happened just two days after this whole meltdown at her campus security job. So Fred Murray, who's Maura's dad, shows up to Maura's campus and Maura needed a new car. So Fred, the dad, was there to help Maura car shop. Although they never ended up buying one, you know, they were looking at a couple of things and um, looking at a couple car dealerships. And towards the end of the day, Fred ended up taking Maura and her really good friend Kate out for dinner at this local brewery. And after dinner, Fred was like, all right, girls, I'm tired. I'm going to go back and retire to my hotel room. And because Maura didn't have a car at this time, she said, hey, dad, like, is it okay if me and Kate borrow your car? We want to go to this party at the dorms and I'll bring it back, you know, tomorrow morning. And Fred agreed. He allowed Maura to take his car that night and Maura and Kate headed over to that party and they attended that party for about four hours, or excuse me, five hours. 
And around 2.30 a.m., Mora left the party and was driving back to her dad's hotel room to return his car, which always kind of has me scratching my head because if it's that late in the night, why don't you just return back to your dorm room and then give your dad his car back in the morning? Why do you need to go to your dad's hotel room right now at 2.30 a.m.? In any case, on the way back, or excuse me, on the way to her dad's hotel room, Mora ends up crashing her dad's brand new Toyota Corolla. And it's not clear whether Mora was drinking and driving as the officer who arrived at the crash site didn't conduct a field sobriety test. But I think we can reasonably assume if she was at a dorm room college party for five hours at around 2.30 a.m., like nothing good happens after 2 a.m., I can reasonably assume that she was likely had drinking that night and maybe she was buzzed or drunk or who knows the state of her blood alcohol level but I think we can reasonably assume that she was drinking which resulted in the car crash and this accident resulted in $10,000 worth of damage and mind you this is 2004 so $10,000 is already a lot of money in 2024 but you know this is literally 20 years ago so that's probably at least two and a half three times um, the value today and I think with so many things going on in Mora's life at this time, right? I think this one really shook Mora up the most. That shit, you know, my life is in shambles. And I really think this is the straw that broke the camel's back for her in terms of her mental breakdown. Breakdown. And really quickly, let's kind of re- revert back to this, this party, this five-hour party that Mora attended before crashing her dad's car. So to this day, no one that attended this party which was at a party that she attended 48 hours prior to her disappearance, no one from this party, including Kate or her really good friend Sarah, will discuss with the police who the attendees were of this party, what happened at this party. Why? Why aren't her friends speaking up? I think that if my friend went missing and we attended this party less than 48 hours before she disappeared and she was already not in a good state of mind, I will be rushing to the police to give them as much information about my friend saying, this is what we talked about. This is what she was struggling with. You know, try and help as much as I can. No detail is too small. And there's a lot of speculation that if the theory is that Mara voluntarily walked away from her life, that this perhaps was her going away party, like maybe a farewell send-off by her friends, and that they're all perhaps continuing to keep quiet about her whereabouts to this day. And they're complicit in Mora's scheme to leave her life on her own volition. And the question is, if this theory of her voluntarily leaving her life were true, why would Mora want to leave? What is that motive? What is her incentive, incentivization to help and leave her family and friends? So there's this author. His name is James Renner. He is the author of this book called True Crime Addict. And he has gone down rabbit holes about the case. And point blank, the Murray family absolutely fucking hates James Renner. He believes strongly in the theory that Mora left on her own volition and that she walked away intentionally to leave the men in her life, specifically her father, Fred, and her boyfriend at the time, Bill. James Renner thinks that Mora was pregnant with Bill's baby. And because there were so many allegations rampant around the West Point campus that Bill was cheating on Mora with another girl on the West Point track team, Mora perhaps wanted Bill to have nothing to do with the baby. She didn't want Bill to have custody over the baby. She wanted to raise this baby on her own. She wasn't going to have a lying, cheating, scum of a boyfriend have any part in raising their shared child. And interestingly enough, on this Oxygen documentary that I was watching, Julie, the sister, even exclaims when the journalist asks her, you know, what do you think of Bill? She goes, well, you know, he was kind of a bit of a talker. Like he loved to be kind of the center of attention. 
and I wasn't really a fan of their relationship because a girl on the track team who I was friends with told me that Bill was cheating on Moral with her. So I think there's a lot of a lot of way to these cheating allegations, so much so, in fact, that when Mora had left, the day that she had left and gone to her car, never to be seen in again, she printed out an email from Bill admitting to cheating on her. So if it's kind of causing it to question, if she let on, left on her own volition, was she leaving this cryptic email from Bren, from <coughs> Billy admitting the cheating allegation? Kind of a show, stick it to him and be like, hey, I know you cheated on me and peace out. There's a lot of confusion about that email left on the desk uh, the, the day that she she left. James Renner, that author, also believes that Mora was just completely sick of her controlling tiger parent of a father and just wanted to leave her life. So back to the scene of the crime, after the car accident, there were phone records that Mora had attempted to call, um, excuse me, back to the scene of after she had crashed her dad's car. So after the car accident, there are phone records that Mora had attempted to call Bill the long distance boyfriend and bill said that when they did eventually reach each other she sounded very torn up about crashing her father's brand new car and that there was a lot on her mind that night she ended up sleeping on the floor of her dad's hotel room that night she didn't return back to her dorm so the next morning fred had to leave the next day for a work commitment in connecticut so he ends up dropping mora off at her dorm and and leaves her on campus he ends up renting a car and you know the car is in the repair shop Fred describes Mora as being visibly upset when he drops her off at her campus dorm and she was whimpering and he said the last thing he told her before he was never to see her again was that everything would be okay. But of course, little did he know this would be the last time he saw his daughter. One other interesting tidbit that doesn't often get discussed is the night that Mora had that panic attack at her campus security job when the supervisor had to escort her back to her dorm room. There's a student, and the student's name was Patrit Vossi. Uh, the student was hit by a car, and it was a hit and run near the University of Massachusetts campus. And the student ended up being in a coma for several months. And there's a lot of speculation as to whether, you know, was Mora responsible for hitting that student because, you know, because she was so distressed that day? Was it because of her sister, Kathleen, and the alcohol abuse? And perhaps was she also responsible for the hit and run? Obviously, there's nothing to be said with certainty, and we don't know if Mora was in fact responsible for hitting this student, but that's some kind of calls into question. We know she's not a great driver. She seemed to be in extreme distress the night that Patrit was hit and run. So maybe, maybe not. It's it's just a it's just a tidbit. So I think to summarize, Mora was battling with an eating disorder. She had a boyfriend who was allegedly cheating on her at another school. She had withdrawn from West Point amid almost being expelled due to petty theft. She had been charged with fraud by using someone's stolen credit card. Her sister was in and out of rehab due to alcohol abuse. And she wrecked her father's brand new car. So this is basically a recipe for a disaster. I think one of these things would cause me to go into a tailspin. And let alone all these things compounding onto one another. It's really hard for someone to get through this, especially someone as young as Mora was at the age of 21. So on February 9th, the day that Mora disappeared, she decided to just leave abruptly from the UMass campus. That morning, she had scoured the internet for information on the Berkshires, and she printed out directions on MapQuest, which TBT, this is before Google Maps on your phones. She'd even called a couple who owned a condo in the Berkshires, and she was on the phone with them for a couple of minutes, but didn't end up renting the unit. 
And this at least shows Mora's intent to kind of stay off the grid for a few days. Clearly, she was planning a trip. With whom? For what reason? Obviously still unclear. Before she had left campus, Mora called a friend whom she had borrowed clothes from that um, a couple days prior. And she had called a friend and said, hey, um, I'm going to drop off your clothes. And the friend responds, no need, just, you know, I'll get the clothes back from you the next time I see you. And Mora insisted, no, 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 I want to drop off the clothes. So she ends up dropping off the clothes at her friend's dorm at around 1.13 p.m. on February 9th. About an hour later after she drops the clothes off, Moore calls 1-800-GHOSTO, which is a hotel booking dispatcher operator. And the system was out of order, but she didn't end up using it. She also emails her boyfriend, Bill, before she leaves campus saying, quote, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you. Signed, Mara. What's even creepier is she emailed her professor and said that there was a death in the family and said that she would be out of town for a few days. And what's even weirder was she submitted a paper before her departure, which causes a lot of confusion on the theory that she would voluntarily leave her life. Because if you were to voluntarily leave your life, why would you turn in homework assignments? Like, that was it. That's it. Like, I'm not doing any more work than I have to. But that kind of calls into question, like, it makes me seem as if she really intended to return it her submitting that paper tells me she really just planned on making this a short trip maybe she just needed to get away what's interesting is the scene of her bedroom apartment um after she had left when the police looked broke into her apartment was that everything was really neatly packed away all of her clothes were packed up in boxes garbage bags suitcases but it's unclear if Mora just simply hadn't unpacked since the holiday break because UMass gives our students one month one month's worth of winter break. So maybe she just hadn't unpacked the shit when she had returned back to campus or if she had actually packed up her belongings before she decided to leave on her own volition. So around 3.30, she jumps into her car and she's headed onto the road and she stops at a gas station at around 3.43 p.m. and then goes to like an ATM, ATM kiosk, a Bank of America kiosk, where she empties approximately $280 from the ATM. And what's really strange is the footage, you know, there's always security cameras at ATM kiosks. The footage from the ATM kiosks were not released until very recently, like back when the Oxygen documentary was released. We, the footage from the ATM kiosk was not released at that point. I think this documentary was filmed in 2016. I know this because they were using Skype still and no one uses Skype. But in this ATM footage, you know, she was wearing a white jacket and she seems to be all alone. And I think the part of the ATM footage that was really confusing for investigators early on was I think they were hoping to see that in the footage was she traveling with someone, right? Like if there is some credence to someone helping her escape, like a tandem driver of some sorts, would we have seen that tandem driver? But I think this ATM footage clears that up, that it seems as if she was in fact traveling alone. After the ATM kiosk trip, she stops by a liquor store and buys a shit ton of alcohol. She buys wine coolers, Baileys, red wine, and police later found the receipt from the liquor store in her car. And at 4.37 p.m., she checks her cell phone voicemail, and this was the last outbound call she ever made before she disappeared. So Mora proceeds to drive 140 miles to where she ultimately crashed. And in the Oxygen documentary, the path that she took was incredibly random. What's interesting is the investigator, who's the host of this documentary, she re 
recreates the entire route that Mora took. So she leaves from her exact dorm room. She goes to the exact liquor store, the exact friend's dorm room to drop off the clothes. She goes to the ATM kiosks. They time it such that if we were to recreate the entire route, what time will we arrive at the crash site? And so the off-ramp that she ultimately got off on, got off on was not near any gas stations or restaurants, which doesn't really make any sense. Like when you're taking... I know that when I would drive from Orange County to San Francisco, I would take the five straight up. And it's about it's about a six-hour drive. And usually when I go off the road, I'm going to a place where I can glaringly see like a Carl's Jr. or a gas station where I know, okay, I'm going to use the bathroom. I'm going to fill up the tank. I'm going to grab some food and I'm going to get back on the road. But what's weird is the off-ramp that Maura took that ultimately led to the crash site was like a random place. So it's it calls into question... Did she know exactly where she was going when she got off on that off-ramp? Or was she just so incredibly confused that she just decided to get off at this random on-ramp? It's just, there's no rhyme or reason to this specific off-ramp. Um, what's even more interesting is that when the investigators redid the entire path from the dorm room, they arrived about an hour before, an hour at the crash, excuse me, I can't speak. They arrived at the scene of the crash an hour before Mora did. So there's about an hour worth of unaccounted time that they don't know what she did. And again, they recreated every single step, the liquor store, the ATM kiosk, the friend's dorm room. So what was she doing in that hour of unaccounted time? Because she had stopped for food and maybe she ran into a bad person who then followed her. Like, I think this is very critical to the entire investigation about what that hour of time she was doing that we don't know what happened. So another thing that was interesting is in the documentary, it was super, super windy, the road that she was on. And the investigator who reperformed the route even said, like, I don't think Mara was drunk when she was doing this route because it's such an, it's on a mountain and it's super windy. She's like, Mora would have crashed well before the crash site if she had in fact been drunk. And obviously they saw all this, there's a lot of speculation about Mora's inebriation levels because there was so much alcohol found in the car, but just based on the route itself, it just seems highly unlikely given how complex this route was. So Laura crashes about half past seven and there's the eyewitness testimony from three different people. A responding officer arrived on the scene at 7.46 p.m., which is roughly seven minutes after Atwood, which is one of the neighbors, called 911 to report the scene of the accident. And there's the two neighboring homes that called 911. There's Butch, the bus driver, that called 911. And it's really important to note that obviously not all of them are watching her the entire time before the cops arrived, right? But they must have all looked away and taken their eyes off of Mora at the same exact time during the short seven-minute window time frame from when they were able to see Mora with their own two eyes from when she just vanished. And I think this kind of calls into to question the theory of, did someone help her escape, right? Because Butch, the bus driver, had asked her, hey, do you need a ride? And she declined the ride. So that makes me think, if another stranger approached her and asked her if she needed help, why would she say no to Butch and then yes to this other stranger, right? Why would she accept it if he had just denied someone else help? Which makes me believe that there could have been, I think the idea of a tandem driver following Mora whose car she got into before the cops arrived is more believable than a random person stopping and her agreeing to get into the car to, of someone that she doesn't know. And I think if there were a, a tandem driver, this more this person was likely complicit in helping Mora to escape her life. But the thing that calls into question is like, why has this person stayed silent for 20 years? And I think it's also important to, to point out that 
During the time of Maura's disappearance, her mother was gravely ill as she had just been diagnosed with cancer. And her family thinks that there was no way in hell Maura would have just voluntarily left her life knowing her mom was super, was super sick. The belongings found in her vehicle show that she was packing for what seemed to be a really short trip. There was, you know, makeup, toiletries, cause a birth control packet with four pills missing, which kind of negates the theory of James Renner, that author that wrote True Crime Addict, about Maura being pregnant at the time with Bill's baby. If she were complicit in taking, or if she was compliant in taking her birth control, she's probably not pregnant. She isn't pregnant. But the one reason why James Renner thinks that Maura Murray was pregnant was because a few days prior to her disappearance, there were Google searches on Maura's computer about the effects of alcohol on an unborn baby, which is what James Renner has hung his hat on. He's like, no, she was pregnant. This is why she decided to leave her life. But one of Maura's classmates has since negated that theory. And she said, no, 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 we were in this nursing uh, class and we were asked to research the effects on fetal alcoholism at the time. James Renner continues to believe to this day that Maura is alive somewhere in Canada. In fact, there have been many sightings of Maura in the Toronto area. And the investigation actually took James Renner up to Toronto where he showed several locals in the area where Maura assumed to be living Maura's photograph. And many people that he interviewed did say, yes, they recognize that woman, that she frequents the area a lot. But again, it kind of goes back to that unconscious bias eyewitness accounts how reliable are they really you know and there's I think that if I had to really take a step back and think about what happened to Maura actually before I go into my theories her family thinks to this day that someone nefarious a serial killer scooped Maura up and took her and I think that's very viable a very viable theory I think that the most likely occurrence of that happening was she met someone bad on the way to her car crash. They were following her unbeknownst to her and they scooped her up when the opportune time occurred or popped up. I think another very reasonable theory is that she was not in the right state of mind. Clearly, there's a lot of speculation as whether she was schizophrenic or she was dealing with a lot of... uh, mental trauma and just going through a lot of undiagnosed medical mental medical issues could she have perhaps just left her car and wandered into the woods and be, due to the treacherousness of that area in Haverhill North Hampshire um North Hampshire New Hampshire it's very possible that she could have just died to the elements and her body was buried and people no never recovered never recovered the body. And I think that's also a very possible solution. And I saw, I've seen footage of this area. I've seen maps of this area in the oxygen documentary. It shows this area. It's a very treacherous, rocky, snowy, woodsy area. I think it's very possible that maybe there's a certain part of the area that wasn't searched and they just missed the belongings that could have been in plain sight, right? I think it's really important to, to know that because of all the creepy events leading up to her disappearance, because of her state of mind at the time, we, it's, you can't just ignore the fact that she could not have been in her right state of mind and she could have voluntarily left her car and been exposed to the elements and unfortunately died. But I'm curious what you guys, what you guys think of this case. There's so many questions and so many theories. And I think this is one of the most perplexing 
true crime stories. And I think it really reminds me of the Bryceless Pieces story. Very similar situation where he was in his car having a mental breakdown. And he up and vanished. And they found his car, I think, either in a lake or in and around that lake. But they couldn't find Bryce to this day. And I've heard a lot of speculation that Bryce is somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, homeless somewhere. The one part that really gets me about the Bryceless Pieces case is he's very distinct and unique looking. He's super tall. He has bright red hair. And so if he was, in fact homeless and just kind of out of his mind dealing with a lot of mental health issues how has no one spotted him yet but I'm curious what what you guys think please DM me with your thoughts if you think she was with a tandem driver and someone helped her assisted her in leaving her life voluntarily if you think a serial killer took her or if you think that she just died from exposure to the elements Please follow me on Xmas All so we can do a little bit of a poll. We can see what you guys all think. And I really appreciate you guys sticking around for me in the year of 2024. I'm going to try my absolute best to release more episodes. I did this goal, uh, this goal workshop with Shannon, Emily, and Tori. And one of my goals was to start prepping episodes like early in the morning before my workday so I can keep releasing more content because honestly, like this show brings me so much joy. And I think oftentimes after work or on the weekends, I'm so burnt out that I don't really want to make it. But when I do release an episode, I get just this tinge of happiness and I love connecting with all of you. So please shoot me a follow on Instagram, DM me. Um, my DMs are open. I'm always, always chatting with you guys. Thank you so much for your support and for listening to the show. I appreciate it so much. And if you want to hear more of me, uh, I'm on Shannon's Patreon, patreon.com slash fluentlyforward twice a month to talk about trending topics and deep dives. Love you guys so much. Bye.